This week's edition of the Northeast Newscast is sponsored by Kansas City T-Bones Baseball. For the love of the game and a hankering for a hot dog, head out to Community America Ballpark for fun well done. For this week's schedule and ticket pricing, visit www.tbonesbaseball.com. Welcome back to the Northeast Newscast. Once again, I'm your host, Paul Thompson, and this week we'll be talking to Kansas City, Missouri City Auditor Doug Jones. We'll start by discussing the Auditor's Office use of social media, and specifically its use of its Twitter handle, at Auditor. From there, we'll dive into the recent police staffing study and talk a little bit about how history repeats itself as it relates to city audits and special reports. We'll discuss a host of previous audits conducted by the Auditor's Office, including one about the consolidation of city and police support services, another about the civilianization of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, and one about the department's take-home vehicle program. All of these issues, in one way or another, were addressed with the recent staffing study, so we'll look into what the recommendations were before and how they've been addressed over the intervening years. We'll also discuss the drive for the new Kansas City International Airport and take a look at previous audits related to city's overtime hours and Bike KC, the city's on-street master bike plan. Stay tuned for an enlightening conversation with Kansas City, Missouri City Auditor Doug Jones. Thanks for listening. All right. It's a beautiful Thursday morning here in Kansas City. I'm sitting alongside Kansas City, Missouri City Auditor Doug Jones. Thank you for taking the time You're today. You're welcome. Thanks for coming by. Hey, by all means. Yeah, we're up in your office at City Hall. It's going to be a long day at City Hall today, a lot going on. So let's just jump right into it. I, I wanted to start with uh, maybe a lighter question just to kind of kick things off and okay. uh, build some rapport here before I hit you with the heavy stuff later. But uh, I, I did want to talk about your social media account. Okay. Because that's something that popped up in June of 2016, I believe. And for those who don't know, you're on Twitter as at Casey Moe, City Auditor. You post a lot of very interesting stuff there, at least I think so. Why did you initially launch the Twitter account, and what's your hope for how Kansas Cityans interact with it? Well, thanks, Paul, for, you know, I'm glad you find our Twitter feed informative. <laughs> uh, and that's essentially why we are on Twitter. Uh, and although our Twitter account started in 2016, we really were not new to Twitter at that point in time. We've been using the city's account through City Communications. Right. Uh, We've done that for about a year or so, using to share information about our audits. Uh, they were doing a really good job for us, and they still tweet some of our tweets or retweet them for us. Mm -hmm. But I started the account because I wanted to um, be able to more actively engage the public. Um, having our own account lets us more quickly and directly communicate with the public about our audits, our upcoming presentations, where to find our reports online, uh, how they can send their audit suggestions to us, uh, as well as other items that might be of public interest or interest to other auditors in other cities. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot of other audit shops that are on Twitter, so you, we can get ideas and share ideas yeah, that I was going to say, how many cues do you get from, from looking at what other cities are doing? Um, a few here and there, mm. or it maybe helps us solidify, yeah, we're looking at the right things, or, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we got to add that to our audit list. Mm -hmm. uh, so, really, this just gives us another way to communicate with one of our primary audiences, the public, about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. How careful do you have to be about going back and forth with people uh, via that medium? Uh, that's kind of interesting. So, from time to time, I do see tweets that are 
tweeted at us at the city's account or that I stumble across them by dumb luck right. where they're asking questions about a city service or concerns about a service or musings about, hey, audit X. And I've been able to respond to some of those with a link to the audit we've actually done on that. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, you know, just last week, I stumbled across somebody that had tweeted questions about the land bank at KCMO 311 at KCMO, but not us. Mm -hmm. Stumbled across it. They were wondering about an audit, and I said, oh, great. I can send you information. So I sent information about, here's the audit that we did. I included a picture of the highlights page and a link to the actual audit itself. Oh, yeah. So it was nice to be able to respond that way. I've been seeing other tweets where people were talking about the bike plan and questions about that. So I was able to say, hey, we addressed that issue. Here's a link to the audit. Nice. So it's been really nice to be able to communicate back. We've done some of these things that you're asking about. Right. And it, and it does seem like the city's website is kind of a treasure trove for that kind of stuff. I mean, how far back do the audits go on the website? And, and, and can you just maybe describe how much information is contained there? Uh, yeah, we have, since 1988, we've done over 321 audits, mm -hmm. and there's about 1,660 recommendations included in all of those audits, follow-ups, special reports, et cetera, that have been done. On our website, you can get audits back to as far as, I believe, 1998. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're also using the city's open data catalog to put some of our other information, our peer reviews, our monthly reports. Uh, we still put the audits out there. Some of the, the newer ones are out there. Uh, so we have a lot of information available on the website. Cool. Well, that's, uh, that's a little bit about the mechanism. I guess we should probably talk a little bit about the content as well and, and right. what you have in there. Let's just jump right into it. I was going to point to one from January of 2001 an audit that was conducted by your office, a performance audit regarding the consolidation of city and police support services. At that point, no specific cost savings were included or provided, but the audit concluded that doing so would create short-term and long-term cost savings. Uh, also laid out recommendations to address concerns surrounding data security and service quality. Now, I pulled this quote from then city auditor Mark Funkhauser, later mayor of Kansas City, of course. He says, however, we concluded that consolidating these functions is not presently feasible due to high resistance, especially by the police department, and limited potential for savings. So I, I, I wanted to pull that out because that's something that, of course, is back in the news with the latest police staffing study that came out, which kind of recommended something pretty similar to say, Let, let's combine those services. Right. And I, I wanted to start with this because it seems like as far as audits go and in city services and how government runs, it's very cyclical in nature. You come into these issues, there's an effort to address them. Some are more successful than others, but right. inevitably the issue crops back up again when there's new leadership or just new circumstances. So as far as this one's concerned, you would have been here at the time, if I understand, right? Within the uh, Right, I was here. Office. Yeah, I was here in 2001. I've been here since 1994. Right. So how many of those recommendations were implemented at the time, and, and why do we see this stuff kind of springing back up? I'm not sure what was implemented at the time, uh, but as far as the potential savings, the the functions in, the, in question at that point in time were accounting and payroll, purchasing and building maintenance functions, and the police department strongly opposed consolidating those uh, services. And the potential for savings were limited in those areas for a number of reasons. There were policy decisions in effect at the time, the city's decentralized financial functions, uh, the de 
the police departments around the clock availability for maintenance, building maintenance, mm -hmm. as well as differences in pay ranges and job qualifications. Those are some of the things that were affecting the potential for savings. So you might have found savings or not, and that's kind of what the audit talked about. But without doing any audit work, I don't know whether those issues still exist today. And like you said, circumstances may have changed right. over the past 16 years. So it's really how current management, current um, elected officials, current board members look at uh, these opportunities. Okay. Well, and the issue is potential savings. I feel like you know, I've sat, sat through enough meetings at this point and heard them talk about this issue enough right. that there are those who believe you could save millions of dollars by consolidating those services, especially as it's related to tech, servers, things of that nature, IT. Mm -hmm. uh, is is that your understanding of how? That's one of the things they're talking about. Is you know, you know, is, is millions too much? Is it? It you know, is it a dollar? Is it five million dollars? Right. I don't know. We haven't done any aud more audit work in that area, but you would think it seems to make sense. It seems logical that if we are able to combine these administrative services, you know, we could save some money or be able to redirect current general fund revenues to other priorities, whether it be in the police department or other city departments, uh, should be some improvements in efficiencies. Uh, think about improved communication and collaboration between the city and the police department. I mean, that would be a huge benefit as well. So there's a lot of little things that may not have dollar amounts attached to it, and then you might find the big dollars. Right. But it's working through the process to find out. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, what we found in 2001, there are no legal barriers, there were no legal barriers to doing the consolidation, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, so that was kind of that audit. All right. Well, then there was something that's kind of, I think, similar that, that came through in 1998. That one was entitled uh, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department Opportunities for Civilian Civilianization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's there you helpful. go. You got it. I was going to keep mumbling through that, but I appreciate you <laughs> stepping in. Um, so... That's kind of, I think it's a little bit of the same ilk on that one because you're dealing with opportunities for cost savings as it relates to staffing. And, and it, specifically with bringing in civilians, that was one of the big takeaways from the police staffing study as well, that, that this opportunity is still there. I think it's of note because it echoes those recommendations. Now, what, in your opinion, based on what you've seen through the auditor's office, what's the biggest benefit of civilian, civilian civilianizing? There you go. Civilianizing uh, the police department. Using civilian employees to manage and perform a variety of administrative support functions rather than sworn police officers would allow the department to reallocate resources by reassigning those sworn officers to law enforcement activities. Mm -hmm. uh, a potential outcome could be more officers available for patrol activities, and I think that's what the consultant that the consultants they just released talked about was realigning how the department was using its officers to put more officers on the street. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be more officers that need to be hired, but looking at how we're being deployed at this point in time. Okay. Now, I I've sent you this ahead of time, but I do have a little bit of a theory, and you can shoot it down here. Uh, but does this persistent recommendation to civilianize that, uh, you know, the chief of police in 1998, Floyd Barge, noted that the KCPD had supported civilianization since 1972. Now, does that have anything to do with the influx of new high-tech positions? I mean, the fact that this is still something that's 
that's on the table. I know 1998 and 2017 uh, is quite a different landscape mm -hmm. in terms of how technology is utilized in the, in the police department and outside of the police department. So I can handle it. Tell me why my theory is bunk. So what do you mean by And so the high-tech positions are you... I'm thinking jobs related to IT, jobs related to technology, jobs related to logistics that, that maybe wouldn't have existed because the technology wasn't there in 1998. Um, those are going to be the civilians. You know, in listening to the consultant study and for being presented last in the last couple of weeks, he talked about, you know, the forensics lab. You don't need sworn officers in doing forensics. You know, there are, uh, there's whole industry of people that can do that work that are civilians. When it comes to the administrative functions like finance and budget, there's again. You don't need the officers with the gun and the badge doing the accounting work and the finance and your capital improvements. There's professionals that are civilians that can do those functions. Hmm. And, th and that allows you to free up the uh, officers to do those law enforcement activities. Uh, I don't know how or why. I think one of the reasons that there are a lot of officers in the administrative support, I, it just seems to me that they are using that as a way for succession planning to right. give their officers exposure to a lot of other activities in, in the police department because it is a separate agency from the city. They duplicate a lot of our administrative services. So you will have officers that are overseeing civilians in these administrative support and it's a way to, like I said, in, you know, train, add experiences for staff as they move through the command structure in the police department. Now, I had a chance to talk to uh, new chief of police, Rick Smith, last week on this podcast, and I brought up this idea of bringing in more civilians in certain roles at the police department, and he seemed to indicate that, you know, he believes that while there are certainly, certainly roles that can be filled by civilians that are currently being filled by officers with a gun and a badge, that some of the other ones, he wants to, I think he wants to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. For instance, he pointed out that maybe in finances or if you have an accountant with a gun and a badge, there are some points where it would be beneficial because they understand how police activities work, how operations work, why the funds are being expended in one way and why they need to keep being expended that way. And maybe they have a better understanding of how operations work on the police side and and why certain expenses are important. How would you respond to that? I'm not sure exactly how. I mean, if you think about, you know, the city's finance department, they, you know, they're not actually embedded with, you know, aviation or my department or public works, but there are fiscal officers in those departments that understand what goes on in those departments. Right. And I just don't, I don't know if you need somebody that is a sworn officer to understand the importance of a department's budget, its finances, how those funds are being expended. Because if you have a fiscal officer that works in your department, they're going to understand your department. You can explain things to them. If they're uh, embedded in the, in the department, right. they'll be able to pick up those things. Right. And uh, when it comes to civilianizing and consulting services, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be small victories, small successes over time that we can build upon. So, you know, looking at what area can we do something with, hey, that worked out, let's move on to the next area. So this could be a multi-year process to do any one of these things, either consulting services or adding more civilians, 
and reassigning the sworn officers back out to law enforcement functions. Interesting. Well, maybe at the end of that multi-year process, I'll be able to say civilianization. <laughs> hey, you got it. There you go. <laughs> that, we didn't even have to. Yeah, that's the first take right there, guys. Right. Um, okay, well, let's move along then. Let's discuss the May 2016 audit discussing the take-home vehicle program. Now, I think at that point that the audit indicated that KCPD has more than 1,000 vehicles altogether. Of course, that includes bicycles, things like that, not necessarily all sedans and typical police vehicles. Uh, roughly how many patrol vehicles does the department have at their disposal? The audit itself didn't identify specifically identify the number of patrol vehicles, uh, but there is an exhibit that compares the number of take-home vehicles and non-take-home passenger vehicles in the total fleet. So mm -hmm. we didn't report on here's X number in patrol. So in May 2015, there were 758 passenger vehicles in the department's fleet and 328 of those were take-home vehicles. So we're talking sedans, SUVs, trucks, vans. Those types of vehicles are the what we considered the uh, passenger fleet. Sure. Uh, but the audit did identify opportunities for the department to improve how it uses and allocates its vehicle resources, and we recommended using information and data to make informed decisions about the take-home vehicle program, and that review could identify needed changes in the allocation of those vehicle resources that instead of a take-home vehicle, maybe they put it back into patrol, or maybe they decided, oh, we don't need that vehicle anymore. So there were opportunities to make some changes that could have reduced the number of take-home vehicles and reallocated them. But we didn't say get rid of this specific vehicle or give it to this specific person. So we were looking more at how the program itself was being managed. And um, Well, I guess the, the reason why I was interested in that because part of that police staffing study focused on this recommendation to shift to more one-person vehicles and move away from having two officers in a vehicle at the same time. I've heard from both sides within, within the police department on this one. Some of them say, well, yeah, I mean, we could do that because a, a large percentage of calls really don't require the second person. Right. If you're responding to a burglary after the fact, you can do that with just mm -hmm. one person. And I've talked to others who say, you know, it, it's awful nice to not have to sit around and wait for somebody else to show up when you do come upon something that is dangerous. And maybe we should prioritize the more dangerous things. So those are going to be situations or a policy decision that the department would have to look at. They would have to evaluate how to go forward. But, you know, as Based far as... Based on what you know, it's, is it palatable? Um, I really don't have an answer about whether the consultant's recommendation to shift to one officer cars is feasible um, from a fleet standpoint, but I do know, you know, one of the things that they talked about when they were asked about the recommendation and the possible cost at the August 15th police board meeting, they said the department had enough, had, had a large enough vehicle fleet to accommodate that. So that's about all I know because we haven't really gone and looked kind of at this more granular level of okay, let's go look at patrol and the uh, vehicles assigned to patrol or the policy decisions associated with a one officer versus a two officer vehicle. I know that they do that because there are certain calls where they want two officers out of sight. Right. Although, you know, the other thing from the police staffing study that, that stuck out to me was this idea that, well, 
maybe the reason why they started doing the two-person vehicles rather than the one-person vehicles was that there just wasn't enough fleet at the time when they started doing that. And, and now that there's more vehicles, maybe you go back to a different format that would be a little easier and also maybe create more visibility on streets in Kansas right. City. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the initial reason for the two officers per car was. I mean, it could have been a safety factor by itself. It could have been a lack of vehicles or a combination of the two. So, I, again, we haven't really evaluated that deployment model. So I, I don't know why it came about other than just kind of some things I think I've heard in the past. Cool. <laughs> well, let's shift again. I wanted to talk about this this airport process that we're in the middle of right, right now. Uh, today is Thursday. It's a really big day. There's going to be questions that are going to be resubmitted or answers are going to be submitted to questions that were offered after the initial interview process on Monday. That selection committee is going to reconvene tomorrow. The, the processes do seem to be in place now to the satisfaction of most of the council as, as far as I can tell. I wanted to ask just what your interaction with the council has been as, as a city auditor mm -hmm. as you kind of see this process from afar. What, okay. What's your stance? How much interaction have you had? And if you can speak to it, uh, what's your impression of the process and how it's played out? Okay. Well, we haven't audited the process for this RFP, so I really can't say much about this process per se from an audit standpoint. Um, I think overall the city's contracting practices incorporate a lot of recommended practices you know, over the years. Um, we have done audits looking at how the city does contracting. Uh, in 2008, we did an audit looking at uh, an RFP process for the city's copier activities. And included in that audit um, are a number of recommended practices, like two pages worth. Mm -hmm. And I had forgot, I remembered the audit itself, but I forgot that those were in there until mm -hmm. I saw an editorial in a another local paper that reminded <laughs> me about that audit. Cool. And uh, so as this whole conversation has been unfolding in council meetings and in the paper, there's a lot of questions. And so as it was all unfolding, uh, there were some discussions by council wondering about process, practices, et cetera. And so what I was able to do, since the other paper reminded me what was in that <laughs> audit, I shared that audit with the council so that they could, you know, see what some of the recommended practices are associated with an RFP process. Mm -hmm. And so that was that's kind of been my interaction with them is just saying, here's here's this information as you guys are discussing. Right. And uh, something something food for thought as as you go through thought. this process. You know, we it's been kind of amazing the past or interesting the past nine months, twelve months. There's been a lot of issues that we've been talking about that have come up that we've done audit work in the past, and that past audit work is still relevant for some of these discussions. It might be a little old, but it still might provide some context or information to help the discussions move forward. Right. I, I got a kick out of the some of the stuff that Funkhauser wrote. You know, it's almost 20 years ago now, but still relevant, right. still discussing issues that are being kind of wrestled with throughout the city. So I think it's it's just interesting and informative to kind of look back at, at stuff like that and, yeah. and, and see how things have changed or not changed over the well, uh, intervening right. years. Well, jumping back to police consolidation efforts, the right. one IT, that was a recommendation we made 16 years ago was to consolidate IT functions. Right. It's happening. And because of that, 
you know, I have some hope for the consolidation efforts moving forward. Right. No, and I, I agree too. And obviously, you got a new chief of police who who's pretty right. open and and willing to look at things. Mm-hmm. And you've also got a, a police board that's undergoing a lot of change as well. Right. So it's an opportunity maybe for a fresh take at some of this a stuff. Fresh take, more buy-in, collaboration. So you know, there's hope. <laughs> yes, pushing ever onward. So let's talk about November 2013. City Auditor's Office concluded that the Fire and Water Department racked up more than a million hours of overtime between 2010 and 2013. I thought that was pretty astounding. Uh, And that combined to make up 62% of all overtime hours during that period, as well as a grand total of $35,343,045 in expenditures. So to this day, some council members have continued to harp on the negative impact of overtime, especially related to the fire department. If you look at uh, Councilman Scott Wagner has brought this up a couple of times about they set a budget and then blow past it to the tune of, you know, several million dollars. I think six million dollars last year was what was over the budget. And and they had already built in a couple million dollars, I understand, to to kind of account for that. So I guess I wanted to ask you uh, how how those percentages related to overtime hours changed since the audit of 2013, if you can speak to that. What drives firefighter overtime, and is it a problem that can be fixed under the present collective bargaining agreement? As far can as... Can you answer any of those questions? I can answer some, <laughs> but some of the answers aren't exactly maybe what you're looking for. Sure. We haven't really looked at or audited overtime since the 2013 audit, so I don't know how we compare today to what we found back then. Right. So I, I don't know. I do know that one of our recommendations was for management to report back to the council on a periodic basis how overtime was coming about in the city, you know, on a citywide basis. And they are doing that. I just can't remember off the top of my head what those look like, and I haven't been saying, okay, let's look at this compared to what we did. Right. So, but it is being, overtime on a citywide basis is being reported to the council on a periodic basis, which is a good thing. Because when we did the audit, everybody kind of had an idea that overtime might be an issue, but then we put it in black and white, and it was like, now you could see it. Right, $35 million in three years, and that's just between two uh, right. yeah, uh, two elements. As far as you know, what drives overtime, the 2013 audit you know, identified a number of factors that drive overtime. The collective bargaining agreement itself. Uh, minimum staffing requirements, emergencies, increased salaries. So, you know, three of those can affect the hours and two of those can also affect, you know, particularly salaries affects how much it is. So when salaries rise, there's also a rise in how much overtime costs. Right. You know, it's kind of that, you have to think about that. Oh yeah, that does make sense. So those are some of the drivers. Uh, And I think performance management made a presentation a week or so ago about uh, use of leave time, and and that's a, another potential driver because you might you know if people aren't at work then you might have to backfill. But I don't know a lot of the details to really talk a lot about that. But you know for us it was really those other things: the CBA, staffing requirements, emergencies, and increased salaries were the drivers that we identified. So when you say the CBA, does for those who uh, are ignorant about some of the stuff, like myself, uh, do you you, re- you mean just in terms of like the the minimum, like the stuff that's required because of? I, I, I guess a, a better question would be: Is what's the biggest driver of the CBA issues? Is it pensions, th- things like that? Uh, well, in the CBA, there are 
rules, there are overtime provisions within the CBA that the city has agreed to. And so those might be above and beyond what the uh, Federal Labor Standards Act requires. Right. Or but negotiations, yield th- but they have result. been negotiated. So it's not that people aren't do these things. It's just this is what has been negotiated. So you know when you're talking about whether these problems can be fixed, uh, I don't know if the issues could be fixed through the CBA. It might be possible, but you would have to negotiate and then get the approval of the union membership for any changes within the CBA. So and, any and changes, this one's relatively new. Right. Any changes that you make, you're going to have to offer something else. I mean, if you're going to take something away, you got to offer something back. That's potential. Right. It's the nature of a negotiation. And, and, and we're not involved in negotiations of those things. Right. Since, you know, that, that's a management function. But okay. those are just some of our thoughts on overtime. Excellent. And you said it was uh, the CBA is relatively recent. You, I, I, I think it's maybe within the last year the okay the so it's been negotiated since you put out that 2013 audit correct okay interesting well let's i know i've taken plenty of your time already and we both have things we got to do today so i'll try to wrap it up here i, I wanted to talk about one of your more recent audits this okay. one's related to uh, the bike kc and and the, and the city's master plan for for biking or right. bicycling I, sorry i don't want to end a, I don't want to make a mistake on that one. I don't want to get in trouble with uh, with some of our motorcycle riders in the city. But I, I took this quote from it because I thought it was interesting. And I'm just going to read it in full here okay. because, heck, this is my podcast. So <laughs> um, It says, quote, This audit concluded that Bike KC, the city's on-street master bike plan, is not adequate to guide city staff to meet the city's multimodal transportation goal or to become a platinum-level bike-friendly city by 2020. Currently... 53% of Bike KC's identified routes are not suitable for the average bicyclist, and 91% of built routes do not include a separate dedicated space to accommodate a bicyclist. Now, that seems like a pretty harsh rebuke to me, and I know that it made some waves on, on social media and the like when, when it was released. So I'll just ask you, what's the biggest reason that the city isn't making more progress or hasn't made more progress on its bicycle-related goals, and what has changed since then? Well, I wouldn't say a harsh rebuke, but it was a critical evaluation. Uh, those are, those are, that was my words. So uh, right. I know. I've, 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 I've been dealing with those words. Uh, like, a, no, a, a critical, critical. evaluation is uh, yeah, maybe, maybe more it's, politically uh, to put. But, yeah, go ahead. But really, to me, the biggest issue affecting progress at the time of the audit was that the bike plan was inadequate to guide city staff in their implementation of the bike infrastructure in Kansas City. It was basically just lines on a map at that point in time. Uh, We found the bike plan did not contain most of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation officials recommended elements of a master bike plan, and we recommended that the uh, bike plan contain those recommended elements uh, and be crafted to meet city goals. So, you know, that statement that you read pretty much was to us what was impeding. Right. was the plan didn't get us where we wanted to go, you know. And, and at the time, the city wasn't making a lot of progress, but this is one of those rare audits where you can actually see immediate actions taken by management to address the issues identified in, the, in an audit. It's an uh, auditor's dream, right? <clears throat> to a certain extent, yeah. It's like, wow, management's actually working on this, you know, because within a few days of the audit being released, the city manager had... Uh, assigned new city staff to the bike ped committee 
they had also assigned planned planning and development to the city planning and development department and since january i've seen or heard about all the planning activities and public engagement related to the plan that's been going on so there's been a, a big push and a lot of activity so it, it's been nice to see movement in that area well so the hope is what 17 18 19 years from now we're not looking back at this audit and pointing out all the recomm recommendations and wondering why nothing's been implemented well that's the hope is that things will progress you know we are waiting on the uh, first audit report audit recommendation tracking system report to come out and when we get that we'll take a look at it see uh, if things are clear to us in that see if the responses are responsive to the recommendations and then that will be presented to the transportation and infrastructure committee to uh, let the council know what progress has been made towards the two recommendations we made in the audit interesting well i know i told you that would be my last question okay. but i'm going to throw you a curveball here because okay. actually no i, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about w some of the stuff you're working on what's coming into the docket next and what your twitter followers and and those in the social media community and, and just the public at large can look forward to uh to see from your office moving forward here so i, I see you've just pulled some papers out uh, right let's see what you got there well this is our monthly progress report and it lists the audits that we have in progress you know kind of the the point in time which we are planning to release the audit so we are looking at the animal health and public safety division council directed us to do an audit you know that's one of the things that they do from time to time is okay. say mr city auditor go audit x you say and wait wait i don't have time to do that oh no okay go, go they pass it. a resolution <laughs> saying do this audit sure. uh, so again, we don't do an audit based on one council member saying go do an audit. It's a resolution by the council. Okay. Uh, another audit we have is we're looking at general services payment process. We did an audit a number of years ago looking at our accounts payable process. There were recommendations and it was a citywide audit. General services processes $180 million of payments a year. So we thought let's go see if the recommendations are in place and how things are working. Okay. Uh, we're also looking at arterial street impact fees. We didn't really select any public audit suggestions this year through our suggestions form but we were listening to conversations and discussion during the GAO bond mm -hmm. uh, time frame and a member of the public had a question about well how are you using the arterial street impact fees what's going on with that mm -hmm. and then the city planning commission sent the council a letter saying hey what's going on with these fees and these are fees that are that developers pay when they build a new development to ensure that the the roadways can handle the uh, the changes in the area, you know, right. increased the traffic, traffic yeah. additional traffic. So those three are well underway. There are scope statements, which are the who, what, why, how, and when we're going to do an audit. Sure. And we also are looking at fire department resource analysis, which the BKD study on overtime identified doing some benchmarking against other cities as another thing that the city could be doing. So we took that on to do that audit. Excellent. Cool. Um, and. The web, the web address then, if, if people want to check in on this stuff, the, the best way for them to find out more about it? KCMO.gov slash city auditor. Uh, and then you would do the search audits. And our, our monthly reports are on the open data portal. And you can click on that. Uh, and on with Twitter, we're always telling people, you know, we tweet out our monthly status report. Mm -hmm. We tweet out scope statements. We tweet out the audits. 
Um, you know, and my hope for how people interact with our account is that they will be or feel like they are better informed about the work of their city government, ask us questions about our work, share information with us, share our tweets with others. Uh, and so following at KCMO City Auditor is the easiest way to keep up to date with what we're up to. Excellent. I was going to make that plug at the end of the episode. You just handled it for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, I'm Once a marketing again, major, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's at KCMO City Auditor. Follow him today to learn what's going on with the City Auditor's office. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Hey. So that is all for the latest edition of the Northeast Newscast. Thanks again for listening, and thanks once again to our sponsor for this week's episode, Kansas City T-Bones Baseball. For the love of the game and a hankering for a hot dog, head out to Community America Ballpark for fun. Well done. For this week's schedule and ticket pricing, visit www.tbonesbaseball.com.